Even in the most difficult Old Testament passages, the eternal victory of God and Christ is made manifest. There are many enemies of the cross of Christ, but who is willing to take him at his word? Welcome to Every Last Word, a radio and internet program with Dr. Philip Ryken, teaching the whole Bible to change your whole life. We're taking part in an expositional study in the book of Jeremiah. In today's passage, Jeremiah prophesies of God's eventual judgment of five of Israel's neighbors. How could it be that all five of these people groups are being judged as enemies? Find out what they all had in common with one another and what they have in common with people of the present coming up here on Every Last Word. Well, Phil, Jeremiah gathers and lists God's judgments on the nations at the end of this book. Why do you think he does that? Well, Mark, as we've seen really throughout our study of Jeremiah, the main focus has been on Judah, on Israel, on the people of God. And yet at the end of the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah proves that he really is, as was said way back in chapter 1, a prophet to the nations. And it proves that all the nations of the world, the whole world, is under the justice of God. And as we come to the end of the book and see this judgment poured out in these prophetic words of Jeremiah, it's pointing us to the ultimate victory of Jesus Christ and the ancient promise that he will crush Satan under his foot. Well, these nations were being condemned because they were enemies of God. What makes an individual or a nation an enemy of God? You know, I think when we think of an enemy of God, we think of somebody that says, in so many words, I hate God, I don't want to have anything to do with him, I'm against God. But, you know, actually, if you look at the Bible, there are many people that don't think of themselves as hating God, but they don't come to him in faith and in trust and in obedience, and that truly makes them the enemies of God. And I think the reason that people take that attitude towards God is for many of the same reasons people do it today. They don't trust God because they're putting their confidence in their financial prosperity, in their worldly wisdom, in their physical or military or political strength. You know, we have all kinds of reasons to put our confidence in lots of other things besides God. And what we'll see in today's passage is that if we trust in ourselves, ultimately, we will come under the judgment of God. And as we apply it to ourselves, the call for us is to put our trust in Jesus Christ. And that's the way to friendship with God is by putting our faith in Christ. Okay, Phil, let's turn in our Bibles now to Jeremiah chapter 49 and listen to God's Word for us today. We come this evening to a difficult passage. I asked a number of people, maybe more than usual, to pray for me this week. It's occurred to me upon further reflection that probably the difficulty is not so much that the passage is difficult, but that the minister is difficult. But be that as it may, we come to an unfamiliar passage in which we are reminded that the Old Testament people of God lived in a bad neighborhood. As we come through these last chapters of Jeremiah, we're reminded that they were surrounded by all of these fierce enemies, and they constantly had trouble with gang violence and with guerrilla warfare and with the invasion of enemy nations. And we do have to mention just a few words about some of these nations. I will apply this very specifically to our own situation eventually. We have five enemies mentioned in this chapter to the west, the Ammonites, to the south, 
the Edomites, to the north, the Arameans or the Syrians, to the far west, the Elamites, and then scattered here and there in between, the tribesmen of Kedar. And these are the very peoples who have troubled the Jews down to this very day, the Jordanians, the Syrians, the Iranians, and the Palestinian Arabs. And these nations in Jeremiah's day were not simply the enemies of God's people, they were the enemies of God himself. And that's why Asaph prayed the way that he did in the call to worship we had from Psalm 83. He mentions the names of many of these nations, and then he says, May they ever be ashamed and dismayed. May they perish in disgrace. Let them know that you, whose name is the Lord, that you alone are most high over all the earth. And in this 49th chapter, we have the answer to Asaph's prayers. And this chapter shows what happens to God's enemies. The substance of Jeremiah's message was repeated many hundreds of years later by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Philippians. He said, Many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction. First, God will destroy the Ammonites. The Ammonites, now the Jordanians, whose capital city is Ammon, were born in incest, for Ben-Ami was the son of Lot's younger daughter after she slept with her father. So the Ammonites were long-lost cousins of the Jews, and they had a long-standing family feud. And one of the things they did is mentioned here in chapter 49, verse 1. They took possession of Gad, which was territory belonging to God's people. Why has Molech taken possession of Gad? Why do his people live in its towns? You see, they don't belong there. And yet this mention of Molech is a reminder that the Ammonites worshipped possibly the most vile of all the pagan deities of the ancient Near East. The worship of Molech required child sacrifice. That is why it was right for God to send Molech into exile. The destiny of the Ammonites was destruction. As these verses tell, God is going to sound the battle cry, and their cities will become a mound of ruins. Molech will go into exile together with his priests and officials. Every one of you will be driven away, and no one will gather the fugitives. And this prophecy was fulfilled fulfilled by the Babylonian army under Nebuchadnezzar in the year 582 B.C. Second, we have here a prophecy about the Edomites. God will destroy them, the Edomites, also cousins of the Jews. They traced their ancestry back to Esau, the brother of Jacob. And that sibling rivalry between those twin nations persisted through the centuries. The Edomites refused to let Moses passed through their territory. They fought against David and against Solomon. And after centuries of hostility, the destiny of Edom will be destruction. I will bring disaster on Edom, the Lord says. If those who do not deserve to drink the cup must drink it, why should you go unpunished? Verse 12, you will not go unpunished, but must drink it. I swear by myself that Basra will become a ruin and an object of horror. God goes on to compare Edom in verses 17 and 18 to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, it is not certain when 
Edom was destroyed, but most likely, again, the Babylonians did it. For Jeremiah says in verse 22, look, an eagle will soar and swoop down. You know that Babylon was often compared to an eagle, especially in Jeremiah's prophecies. In the third place, God will destroy Damascus, the capital city of the Syrians. The Syrians were fierce enemies of the Jews. Gangs of them often came down into Israel during the days of Elijah and Elisha, and yet their destiny also will be destruction. Damascus has become feeble. She has turned to flee. Her young men will fall in the streets, and all her soldiers will be silenced in that day. This prophecy may date to the period shortly before 605 B.C. when Damascus became a vassal of Babylon. Next, Jeremiah utters a prophecy concerning Kedar. This refers to the Bedouin of the Middle East, to the wandering shepherds who lived in tents. And since they lived out in the desert as nomads, they often escaped military conflict, and yet not this time. Their destiny also will be destruction, arise and attack Kedar. Verse 28, their tents and their flocks will be taken, their shelters will be carried off. Even in the desert, their enemies will find them and surround them. According to the Babylonian chronicle, Kedar was attacked and defeated in the year 599 B.C., in part because they tried to cut off the Babylonian supply lines. And then finally, this is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah the prophet concerning Elam. This is verse 34 and following. The Elamites were the Persians who lived far to the east in what is now the southern part of Iran. And like the other nations, the Elamites also were destined for destruction. I will bring the four winds from the four quarters of the heavens. I will scatter them to the four winds. and There will not be a nation where Elam's exiles do not go. The point is that although the Elamites were not Israel's immediate neighbors, they were not outside the sovereignty of God. Their judgment very likely came in the year 596 when the Babylonian Chronicle mentions a skirmish, more than a skirmish, a battle between Babylon and Elam. Do you see the pattern? You see the pattern in these scriptures? Every last one of God's enemies will be defeated. Jeremiah collects all of these prophecies against the nations, which were uttered over the course of many years, and he gathers them all at the end of his book to show that God rules over all nations and will bring all of them to justice. And this is a great comfort whenever there is trouble in the world. Whenever we are discouraged by news of some evil in some place or another, it is the comfort that God's justice will prevail. One day the nations of the earth which invade their neighbors or rule by terror or oppress the poor or traffic in drugs or export death or stockpile chemical and biological weapons or promote abortion, throughout the world. Every last nation will be brought to account for its sins, and this includes, of course, our own nation. The destiny of all those who set themselves against God and His people is destruction. 
And we must say and remember that it is right for God to destroy his enemies. When God punishes these nations, he is not revealing a flaw in his moral character, quite the opposite. A king who allows himself to be mocked loses all respect. A ruler who refuses to stand up to his rivals loses his kingdom. This, you remember, is what destroyed King Arthur and the stories about the Knights of the Round Table. His great military commander, Sir Lancelot, was sleeping with his queen, Queen Guinevere. And King Arthur refused to show the kind of moral character which a king ought to show in such a situation, and ultimately his kingdom of Camelot was destroyed because he failed to respond to this challenge to his authority. A true king defends himself. He has the courage and the strength to defeat his enemies. He doesn't allow evil men to take his land or to enslave his people or to insult in any way his royal dignity. So you see from this chapter of the Bible, that God himself is a true king. He is the true king over heaven and earth. He is able and willing to subdue all of his enemies. He does not allow evil men to attack his people. And all through these oracles of judgment, we hear the voice of God. Notice this again and again in this passage, verse 2, I will sound the battle cry. Verse 10, I will strip Edom bare, or rather Esau bare. Verse 27, I will set fire to the walls of Damascus. Verse 32, I will scatter to the winds those who are in distant places. And again in verse 38, I will set my throne in Elam. Those are some of the examples. And what they show is that God defeats his enemies to defend his royal authority. There is a striking picture of God's kingship in these verses. comes in the prophecy against Edom. And what Jeremiah does is he describes God's sovereignty in terms that the Edomites could understand. In those days, the forests of Edom were inhabited by wild animals. And so he draws a comparison with the king of beasts. This is verse 19, like a lion coming up from Jordan's thickets to a rich pasture land, I will chase Edom from its land in an instant. Who is the chosen one? I will appoint for this. The young of the flock, verse 21, will be dragged away. He will completely destroy their pasture because of them. The question that God asks And these verses demands to be answered, who is the chosen one whom I have sent? The chosen one, I will appoint for this. Who is the chosen one? Who is this lion? Who is this king who will defeat all of God's enemies? You know, the prophet Isaiah asked the same question in one of the most stunning prophecies of the Old Testament. We find it in Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah makes a similar prophecy. It's a prophecy about the destruction of Edom. And in chapter 63, verse 1, he says, Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garments stained crimson? Who is this robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of his strength? 
You see, like Jeremiah, Isaiah pronounced a curse against Basra, the city of the Edomites. And he saw a warrior advancing with his robes spattered blood red. And he posed the same question as Jeremiah, who is this? Who is this? Yet unlike Jeremiah, Isaiah was given an answer. We read at the end of verse 1, as the warrior says, It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. In other words, it is the Lord God Himself who strides from Basra. It is the Lord God Himself who has defeated the Edomites. The Lord God Himself being the chosen one appointed to conquer all of His enemies. And here the prophets surely are pointing forward to that chosen one, God himself, and yet also the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who came into this world to defeat all God's enemies and to rule as the Most High over all the earth. And this judgment of the Edomites is a picture of final judgment, when every last one of God's enemies will be utterly defeated. It is a vision of the eternal victory of Jesus Christ. For even now, God the Father has placed God the Son at His right hand, and He has surely promised to make all His enemies a footstool for His feet. And we have this sure promise that Christ must win the victory over sin, over death, over every power and every prince who opposes him, even over Satan himself. And this is good news. It is good news to know that all of God's enemies will be defeated. And it is good news to know that God will rule as the Most High over all the earth. Yet it's also worth pointing out that this is good news only for God's friends, not for His enemies. It is not good news for them. It is the worst possible news. If Christ will defeat all of His enemies, then it is desperately important to become one of His friends. So it is worth asking from the pages of Scripture and from this chapter, Jeremiah 49, what it means to be an enemy of God. Are you a friend of God? Or are you still one of his enemies? Well, it helps to know what an enemy of God is, and it's worth pointing out that these nations were not considered God's enemies because they hated God, although I suppose that in some cases they did hate God. No, these nations were God's enemies simply because they did not trust in God. They trusted in other things. As we read through this chapter, we can see that for each nation, its ultimate confidence was placed in someone or something other than the true and living God. The Ammonites trusted in their wealth. We find it in verse 4, why do you boast of your valleys so fruitful? You trust in your riches and say, who will attack me? So the Ammonites did not think that anyone could touch them because they had these lush, Valleys, which were the source of all of their food and prosperity and security. The Edomites trusted in their wisdom. They were very clever. They were known for their practical intelligence. And you can see that in the insult 
Jeremiah gives them in verse 7, Is there no longer wisdom in Taman? Has counsel perished from the prudent? Then again we find in verse 25 that the Syrians trusted in their fame. Damascus is called the city of renown. The Bedouin trusted in the Wilderness, verse 31, arise and attack a nation at ease which lives in confidence, a nation that has neither gates nor bars. Its people live alone. They depended on their privacy, their remoteness, and their isolation to save them. And then, finally, the Elamites trusted in their weapons. In Isaiah, we learn that they were well known for their skill at archery. You'll notice in verse 35 that Jeremiah calls the bow the mainstay of their might. And so you see, the nations of Jeremiah's day depended on their wealth. They depended on their wisdom and they depended on their weapons. That is why this chapter of Scripture is much more than a history lesson. For these are the very things that people trust in our day. People trust in these things to make it through life. They trust in their money, or their intelligence, or their independence, or their power. They count on their savings to provide for their ultimate needs. They think they're smart enough to beat the system. They think they can make it on their own. They believe that they can manipulate things for their own advantage. And we ought to see ourselves in these nations. Like the Ammonites, we are well stuffed with food. Like the Edomites who built their homes up on the rocky cliffs, we build our homes higher and higher up the hill. Like the Bedouin, we need our space and we value it. Like the Elamites, we count on our military strength. We say, who will attack us? Surely God may judge some other nations, but it will never happen here. It will never happen to me. Yet Jeremiah shows what happens to people who trust in anyone or anything else except the one true God. Wealth didn't save the Ammonites. They were not able to buy their way out of judgment. Wisdom did not save the Edomites. God made them small among the nations. He made them despised among men. Though they built their nest as high as the eagles, from there they were brought down. God found the Bedouin in the wilderness just the same. Nor did weapons save the Elamites. The Lord Almighty says, See, I will break the bow of Elam. We find in God's judgment against these nations the proof of something that Jeremiah said much earlier. You may remember, it's a famous saying from Jeremiah chapter 9, Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches. And then here's something you probably forgot. Jeremiah goes on to say this, The days are coming when I will punish Edom, Ammon, and all who live in the desert, in distant places. In other words, the nations that trusted in those very things, the nations that trusted in their wisdom and their strength and their riches. God judged these nations to show that intelligence and power and riches 
are unable to save. The destiny of anyone who trusts in these things is destruction. So don't let these things lull you into a false sense of security in life. Your investments can't save you. You are at the mercy of the Hang Seng Index or the Nikkei Index, and it's a shaky foundation. Your IQ will not save you. There are no test scores that are checked at the entrance to heaven. Nor will your physical strength save you. Everyone in this room tonight is growing older, older by the moment, and our bodies are growing weaker, and finally they will die. You see, salvation is found in Jesus Christ and in no one else. Salvation is found in Jesus Christ and in no thing else. Salvation is found in Jesus Christ and nowhere else at all. Perhaps you know the wonderful words with which the Heidelberg Catechism opens. What is your only comfort in life and in death? Is it wealth? Is it wisdom? No, my only comfort in life and in death is that I belong body and soul and life and in death, not to myself, but to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who at the cost of his own blood has fully paid for all my sins and has completely freed me from the dominion of the devil. Now, those are words of grace. And there are some words of grace In Jeremiah 49, it's mainly a passage about justice for God's enemies, but as we have found everywhere else in Jeremiah's prophecies, there are also words of grace for God's friends. There's a hint of grace in verse 11, where God says, "'Leave your orphans, I will protect their lives. Your widows, too, can trust in me.'" You see, the Edomites were about to be destroyed, every last one of them, and yet, because God has this grace for the humble because he gives his special favor to needy children and to lonely women, he gives them this promise of rescue and salvation. And this promise of protection, I believe, can be claimed by widows and by orphans and by foster children and by single-parent mothers and by anyone else who is more sinned against than sinning, anyone else who is among the neediest of the needy. God's grace, we find in these verses, is not just for such individuals, it is also for entire nations. You may have noticed that there are two verses in this chapter which give a promise of restoration. We find it in verse 6. Afterward, I will restore the fortunes of the Ammonites. And then again, at the end of the chapter, in verse 39, I will restore the fortunes of Elam in the days to come. And this may refer to the restoration of these nations in the time after judgment, and even to this day, to a certain extent, the people of Jordan, the people of Iran now live in their own nation. But I believe that in the Scriptures we find the fulfillment of this promise in a more lasting blessing. The Elamites were lost in the days of Jeremiah. But we can find them in the pages of the New Testament. I wonder if anyone here remembers where the Elamites 
turn up again in the pages of Scripture. It's in the second chapter of Acts. You may remember how Luke describes the day of Pentecost when all the believers were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. When the people gathered there from many nations heard this sound, they gathered in bewilderment because each one heard them speaking in his own language, utterly amazed. They asked, how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language, Parthians, Medes, and Elamites? We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. You see, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the Elamites heard the wonders of God in their own language, and surely, surely some of them were among those 3,000 who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and were baptized by the apostles on that day. God has not stopped fulfilling His promise to the Iranian people since that day. No, at this time throughout the world, there are more Iranian Christians alive today than at any other moment in history. Since there are more than a million Iranians in the United States, we also have this wonderful opportunity to share in the fulfillment of the promise God made to Iran through the prophet Jeremiah. This is part of God's plan to save the people of Iran by His grace. And we pray for them, and surely you will join with us in praying for them for their salvation. Now, those are wonderful reminders about God's grace, but I want to close by showing you something mysterious about God's grace. Why does God give grace to some and not to others? You know, all the nations in Jeremiah 49 were enemies of God, and so they were all destined for destruction. Yet by His grace, God saved some anyway. Why some and not others? In his commentary on this chapter, Derek Kidner is reminded of the two thieves who were crucified on Calvary, one on either side of Christ. And they were both sinners. We learn in the Gospels that they both hurled insults at Jesus. They were both enemies of the cross of Christ. They were both destined for destruction. And yet, one of those robbers received the grace of God while he was hanging on the cross. He confessed his sin. He said, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. He not only confessed his sins, he confessed Christ. He said, this man, meaning Christ, has done nothing wrong. And then he asked for the free gift of eternal life. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus gave that man the grace that he prayed for. Why did Jesus save one thief and not the other? Why some nations and not the others? Kidner quotes an old saying, One was saved that none might despair, yet only one that none might presume. We have in the promise of grace for Elam the assurance that we ought not to despair, that if God's grace is strong enough for the people of Iran, it might even be strong enough for us. And yet, God's judgment against Edom and against Damascus and against Kedar warns us not to be presumptuous, 
We will not be saved by trusting in anyone or anything else except the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen, and let's pray together. Our Father, we confess that we see more of ourselves in these ancient peoples than we ought to see. Our confidence is in too many other things, and yet we desire to place our confidence on Jesus Christ and Christ crucified and Christ risen. We pray that we might receive this grace which you have poured out on the people of Iran and on the people of all nations. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to Every Last Word, a ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, featuring the Bible teaching of Dr. Philip Graham Ryken. We appreciate your ongoing support of this broadcast ministry. The Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformation theologians from decades, even centuries gone by, we seek to provide contemporary Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. The Alliance also produces the radio broadcasts The Bible Study Hour, featuring the teaching of the late Dr. James Montgomery Boyce and Dr. Barnhouse in the Bible, featuring the Bible teaching of the late Dr. Donald Gray Barnhouse. For a full list of radio stations carrying our programs, please visit our website at www.alliancenet.org. Every last word continues through your generous gifts and financial support. If you would like to see this program continue to benefit others as it has benefited you, please prayerfully consider becoming a friend of the Alliance. For more information or to make a contribution, please contact us by calling toll-free 1-800-488-1888. You can also send us a gift by writing to Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at www.alliancenet.org. Be sure to ask for a free resource catalog featuring books, audio teachings, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to Every Last Word. <laughs>